A TWA flight is on its way to LaGuardia in New York when they stop responding to ATC. A United Airlines is trying to get to JFK by taking a shortcut when they also stop responding to ATC. What caused these two planes to meet the same fate? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have... Emily. Yay! Yay. Hey! Welcome back. Thanks. How's everybody doing? <laughs> we're doing okay. We do, we're, we're chugging along we're here. We're chugging along. <laughs> Miranda spilled wine all over our mixer. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I it's literally okay. moved a little bit and it spilled all over the, uh, the side of the mixer we use. It's It seems to be okay right now. Yeah, so. we had a small panic attack where it was like... Mm. Hopefully I hope that's working, works. <laughs> but we're good. But everything it seems, seems to work. Everything seems to be fine. So here we are. Yeah, we're gonna do a few reminders. Uh, newsletter, check out the newsletter. Yeah, that's a new thing. You can subscribe on the website, uh, submit your listener stories and your listener questions, and check out the Patreon. Yep. And uh, we'll just go on from there, I guess. <laughs> All those things. So, what are we covering today, Nick? So, today it's kind of complicated. Thank you to David from Disgusta, Georgia, <laughs> for recommending this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks, David. If you haven't listened to the listener episode, that's a good uh, introduction to introduction who he is. Introduction to who he is. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to the listener episodes, any of them. They're yeah, great. seriously. Any of them. them. He is a very good storyteller, and we very much appreciate he it. He also submitted a story for next month. I saw. <laughs> So, or I guess this month, because this will come out in January. Yeah. So Happy New Year, y'all. Happy New Year. I'll just start with this one. First off, we're starting with TWA Flight 266. This happened on December 16th of 1960, so this is actually uh, pretty much a, a anniversary crash. Of recording. Of recording, we're yes. We're recording on the 20th. Yes. This is 60 years ago. Wow. So, this was a Lockheed L-1049 Super Constellation. Is a quite the interesting looking airplane, actually. We were having this discussion this morning. I think the airplane is one of the last airplanes, one of the last airliners in history up until the 787 that was designed with some kind of style and not just being a metal tube. But I do understand that some people do also think it's kind of ugly. I kind of don't mind the way they look. It I think they like were a pelican. <laughs> I think they were designed with some kind of style and it's kind of cool. Howard Hughes was all over this airplane when Lockheed designed it. And he was a big part of helping them design it. So that's why this airplane is the way it is. And it was also a big seller for Lockheed. This one in specific was November 6907 Charlie. And it was known as the Star of Sicily. What was its name? Back then they named their planes. Yes. Like cruise ships. Yep. Why did we stop doing that? That seems like a good plan. There's there are too still, many planes. There's still a few airlines that do that. KLM is one of them. Frontier. Yeah. That's fair. Yep. They do that. You know that. But I feel like they don't name the plane so much as the animal on the tail. Yeah. Which is also the name of the plane. That's cheating. <laughs> You're cheating. <laughs> this was a scheduled flight from Dayton to LaGuardia. So Dayton, Ohio to LaGuardia, New York, via Columbus, Ohio. So really short hop from Dayton to Columbus and then on over to LaGuardia in New York. Captain for the flight was David A. Woolham. 
First officer was Dean T. Bowen. And the flight engineer was... I can't decide if it's Leroy or Leroy. I think it's Leroy. I think Leroy it's sounds Leroy. more... Leroy. Yeah, but the way it's written is capital L, small e, capital R, O-Y. Oh. So I think it's Leroy, not Leroy. Take it as you see fit. Anyways, Leroy L. Rosenthal. There are no hours for anybody in this story. So in specific, we are talking about the leg from Columbus, Ohio to LaGuardia in New York. For this leg, there were five crew and 39 passengers for a total of 44 people on board. This included two infants. The gross takeoff weight for this airplane was expected to be 101,444 pounds, including 2,600 gallons of fuel. The estimated time en route for this flight was 1 hour and 32 minutes. The flight plan was filed as an instrument flight rules flight plan at 7,000 feet for cruising. Yes, 7,000 feet. Was this before pressurized? No, this airplane is pressurized. Just flew at 7,000 feet? So that was the initial filed flight plan was filed for 7,000 feet. I think they did this expecting that they would push them higher. And to be fair, the weather is part of what pushed them higher. Okay. Flying that low in propeller airplanes, it kind of makes sense because it's a lot harder for a lot of these older piston airplanes to be pressurized. It takes them a lot longer to, to climb to altitude and be pressurized. And so because of that, flying at a lower altitude just makes it a lot more comfortable for the passengers. And it makes it a lot easier on the airplane. But it's not as efficient. So there's flip sides to that. The flight plan filed was to fly direct to Appleton, Ohio, then the Victor 12 airway. So when we start talking about Victor airways, these are literally the highways in the sky. They go from one place to another, and it tells you this is exactly the line you follow to do that. And it's usually between two VORs. Right. They're usually between two VORs, which VORs are actually their radio waypoints. So you can use those using radio navigation to find yourself to and from those waypoints. And typically these Victor Airways go between VORs. The flight plan was, as I was saying, filed to fly direct to Appleton, Ohio, then the Victor 12 Airway to Johnston, Pennsylvania, or Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and then to take the Victor 106 Airway to Selengrove, Pennsylvania, and then the Victor 6 to the Victor 123 Airways all the way over to LaGuardia. The instrument flight rule clearance was changed twice, however, as the airplane proceeded, and it was changed to the, the it was just a change to the cruising altitude once to 17,000 feet and a second time to 19,000 feet. Got it. So yes, it was initially filed at 7,000 feet and then they refiled at 17 and then they refiled at 19. The flight departed Columbus at 9 a.m. and climbed to the cruising altitude of 19,000 feet. The flight was routine as it flew all the way to the New York area. At 10.05 a.m., the flight reported to the New York Air Route Traffic Control Center that they were over Sellins Grove at 19,000 feet. ATC then cleared them to descend in stages to cross Allentown, Pennsylvania at 11,000 feet. At 10.19 a.m., the flight reported crossing Allentown at 11,000 feet as prescribed. The flight was then told to stand by for further descent. At 10.21 a.m., the air traffic controller instructed them to descend to 10,000 feet, so down another 1,000 feet. At 10.23 a.m., the air traffic controller advised the flight of the weather at LaGuardia, which was light snow with 500-foot ceilings and one nautical mile of visibility at the time. So not great. Not great. Still landable. They were advised that the ILS approach for runway 4 was in use, but the localizer was inoperative. So 
saying that the actual direction finder for the ILS was not working. But, in theory, then, the glide slope was, so they could still find their way down. They just needed to find themselves left and right in the right place. Between 1024 and 1026, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend down to 9,000 feet. At 1027, the flight advised the air traffic controller that they were past the Solberg VOR, one of the points along their route. The air traffic controller then handed the flight off to the LaGuardia approach controller. At 10.26 a.m. and 22 seconds, the flight made contact with LaGuardia and reported being at 9,000 feet. The air traffic controller then instructed the flight to maintain 9,000 feet and to report a 010 Robbinsville and to expect the ILS runway 4 with no expected delays. So, this is a little bit confusing and this is where things are going to get confusing. And we'll try our best to explain this as best as we can. But the Robbinsville, that Robbinsville call was a VOR. Robbinsville is a VOR. This is going to be a pretty VOR-heavy episode. And they're flying along a route, and Robbinsville, think of a VOR as having a ring around it of directions. So, as if you were standing out in the middle of a field, you have 360 degrees all the way around you laterally. Well, a VOR has the same thing, and that's called a radials. So so each direction stemming from it is a radial. Right, which is totally separate from an actual heading on an airplane. Not that they can't be the same necessarily, but it has a totally different function. So they're flying along this route, and Robbinsville is off somewhere in space, say to the south of them. And as they're flying along, eventually they're going to cross, if you drew a straight line out at a heading of 010 away from... Robbinsville. Robbinsville on a 010 radial, eventually they will cross that straight line that's come protruding from from the Robbinsville VOR. And that is a reporting point for them. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Step one of VORs. <laughs> yes. It, it is highly confusing. The flight then asked about the localizer at LaGuardia for runway four. And the air traffic controller told them that it was actually the glide slope that was an operative, not the localizer. So initially, the center controller had told them the localizer wasn't working, but it was actually the glide slope that wasn't working. So they didn't have any vertical reference in reality, but they did have lateral reference, which actually, when you're flying through a snowstorm, might be more important. Because you don't want to deviate left or right, and up and down, you can kind of figure the math to find yourself on the right place. At the right time, because usually approaches have certain check-in points for altitude along the way anyways, to get your nice glide slope in. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to descend to 8,000 feet. At 10.29 a.m., the air traffic controller then cleared the flight to descend to 6,000 feet and have them advise when they were passing through 8,000. And at 10.29 and 49 seconds, the flight did report they were passing through 8,000 feet, as asked. The air traffic controller acknowledged and instructed the flight to stay on their present heading until they give them the vectors for the approach. So in other words, they're going to just keep flying the same direction they are, and eventually the air traffic controller will start giving them heading changes to fly for setting them up to the approach for LaGuardia. At 10.30 a.m. and 49 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to reduce to its approach speed, so slow way down. They're actually still pretty far away from LaGuardia at this point. At 10.32 a.m. and 9 seconds, the LaGuardia approach controller instructed the flight to turn right to a heading of 130. The air traffic controller then asked the flight for its current altitude, and a few seconds later, the flight advised that they were at 6,000 feet. 
The air traffic controller then cleared the flight down to 5,000 feet two seconds later. So, two seconds later, the call was made to send another 1,000 foot. At 10.32 a.m. and 37 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn right to a heading of 150, so an extra 20 degrees from what he originally told him. Ten seconds later, the air traffic controller advised traffic at 2.30, six miles northeast bound. That's 2.30 as a time. Yes. So it's like when someone says, like someone's standing at your three o'clock, that's at your right. So 2.30 is just a little bit ahead of your right. Right. So in the direction they're flying, this plane should be a little bit off to their forward right. Mostly right. Mostly right. But their forward right at 2.30 on a clock. And they're six miles away from them heading northeast bound. The airplane currently turning for a heading of 150 is turning a bit southeast bound. At 10.32 a.m. and 51 seconds, the flight acknowledged this. And a few seconds later, the air traffic controller requested the flight's altitude again. The flight responded with a very garbled message. The air traffic controller then asked them if they were at 5,500 feet. And the flight reported that this was correct. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to descend down to 1,500 feet. And then the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn left to 130. So go back to 130. At 10.33 a.m. and 26 seconds, the air traffic controller advised, quote, appears to be jet traffic off your right now 3 o'clock at 1 mile northeast bound. Almost immediately after the transmission ended, a noise like an open mic on the radio occurred for 6 seconds. The air traffic controller then requested the flight turn left to 100 with no response. The air traffic controller made several more calls to the flight, but with no response. So, now let's talk about United Airlines Flight 826. Yep, you know what happened. (laughs) (laughs) When we have two, guess what? Guess what? They probably hit each other. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) How? I don't know. But at some point, it went, collide, and then boom. Yes. Most likely. I imagine that's what happened. <laughs> sort of. We'll get there. <laughs> so United Flight 826 was a DC-8-11. So this was the smallest version of the DC-8. This is a big quad-engine turbofan. So it is a jet aircraft, as it would be known. With the tail number November 8013 Uniform. And it was known as the Mainliner Will Rogers. So it also had a name. Yay. Yay. (laughs) This was a scheduled flight from Chicago to JFK. And actually earlier in the day, the airplane had been picked up in LAX by the same crew and flown to Chicago. It had a different flight number. They had a two-hour layover in Chicago before continuing on to what is actually Idlewild. At not, this time. Not JFK. We, I say JFK because that's what everybody knows it today. But at the time, it was known as Idlewild or New York International. Weird. Also, yes. for anyone who has watched the Why Planes Crash episode that contains all, like, a bunch of collisions, they actually mix up which plane goes to which airport. In this accident? Yes. And this is crazy to me. Like, they got one of the smallest details wrong. One of the, the, the easiest ones to figure out. The airports they were supposed to land at? Yeah. So TWA was going to LaGuardia, and United was going to Idlewild. And they had it the other way around. Oops. But the report clearly states which one goes where. So, I mean, we've found issues with fact-checking on those before, too. Yeah, but that one's pretty important. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an easy one bit. to not get wrong. 
It's just locations. Yeah. The captain for this flight was Robert H. Sawyer. First officer was Robert W. Fibing. They were both Babs. Yep, they were both Babs. And then the second officer was Richard E. Pruitt. This flight was to have, we're talking about the leg from Chicago to New York, obviously. Yes, thank yeah, you. If you haven't figured that out yet. This leg was to have seven crew members and 76 passengers. The takeoff weight for this airplane was to be 214,790 pounds, so more than double what the Constellation was. Oof. This included 63,700 pounds of fuel, which I also found interesting because they made it, they were pounds of fuel on the United, but they said gallons of fuel on the TWA. Interesting. I think a lot of that has to do with Jet A versus the low lead that was put in the Constellation, so two totally different types of fuel probably measured a little different when they were reported to the airlines. Airlines also probably report differently. It's they two do. different airlines. Yep. True. They true, can do true. it either way. It doesn't really matter as long as it helps with weight and balance. It also expected to have 6,450 pounds of cargo. The max allowable takeoff weight for this airplane was 217,000 pounds. So they were inching pretty close to that at 214,790 pounds. So almost 215,000 pounds. They were only about 2,000 shy of their max takeoff weight. Yes. They had filed an IFR flight plan, an instrument flight rule flight plan, which is very normal for all airlines, with a cruising altitude of 27,000 feet, with clearance to go via the Victor 55 airway, then onto the Jet Victor 60 airway. They had actually different, at the time, different airways for jet traffic versus lower traffic or all traffic. So the Victor 55 was a all traffic airway, but then they had a specific one for jets. That was V60, Victor 60. And then all the way to New York. They estimated the time en route was one hour and 29 minutes with a planned airspeed of 478 knots or 530 knot ground speed. Pretty fast. As a matter of fact, so fast that Chicago to New York is much further than Columbus to New York, and they were doing it three minutes faster than Columbus to New York on the TWA. But they're in a different plane too, right? Jet. And yep. they're higher, right? Yep. So yeah, all around sense. way faster experience than Constellation. That just kind of shows you at the time how transitioning from the the props to the jets, how dramatic that was, and how drastic of a change that was for speed and time and all those things. It just is, it's wild to think about because right now we don't have anything crazy like that. Any new airplane that's built does the same thing as every other airplane. Unless the boom plane comes out, and then we'll have a supersonic plane. <laughs> yeah. This flight departed at 9.11 a.m. and climbed straight to 27,000 feet, which it reached at 9.36 a.m., so pretty quick. The flight to the New York area was normal, and at 10.12 a.m., the New York Air Route Traffic Control Center was contacted by the flight, so they reached out to the They went, ding New dong, York. hey, Hey, friends. we're here. <laughs> we're in your area. <laughs> Is that exactly how it happened? Yeah. Yes, there's that, a doorbell. That is a quotation. <laughs> knock, from... knock. Can I come in? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That's not a quote. I haven't looked at the report. No, so. that's not a quote. Knock, knock. Can I come in? It's knock, cold knock, out here. Ding dong. <laughs> hey, I'm in your airspace. <laughs> the air traffic controller did not have a, the available radar contact to him for this flight. So basically, this airplane wasn't in his radar. But he had the flight's progress, so where they were intending to go, along what route, and where they were up to this point. Well, they would eventually be on radar, right? Yeah, eventually, yes. Okay. This is kind of normal for the time. Not every area was covered entirely by radar, so some of these air route traffic control centers had to rely on the last given check-in point 
and the progress up to there, where how fast they'd been traveling, time between points, and speed, altitude, you know, all those things. So up to this point, he knows basically in, a, in, a, in his mind exactly where this plane is and where it's going. He then instructed them to descend down to flight level 250, or 25,000 feet, so 2,000 feet down. At 10.15 a.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight to the Preston intersection via the Jet Victor 60 airway to Allentown, direct to the Robbinsville VOR. Sound familiar? Yeah. Uh-oh. But they're actually going to that VOR. They are actually going to that VOR, and TWA never did. Not... It was intersecting it was a radial of that VOR. Oh, okay. Yes. So this one's actually going south all the way to the VOR. Directly okay. to the VOR. And then they were to fly via the Victor 123 airway... And then he instructed them to maintain flight level 240 for the time being. The flight acknowledged this. And then at 10.21 a.m., the flight reported to the company radio that the number two navigation receiver accessory unit was inoperative. What? what? So, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> what the heck is words. that? So to be clear, what this is, is actually a form of navigation instrumentation. This is the piece of equipment in the cockpit that actually helps you find the VORs. Yes, I had to look up a wiki how on how this thing actually works. <laughs> this is very complicated. It's like a compass. It's a very, no, no, that was my thought. It's a very simple looking device that is very powerful and at the same time also extremely confusing to use if you actually read into it. And antiquated. Yes, but also used every day still, which is just crazy. I mean, we're talking about pretty old technology at this point that was rampant, but also is still there. All of it is still used. For reference as to how much it is used, Nick and Brendan spent four hours yesterday trying to figure out Brendan's VOR flights for today? Yes, that he was supposed to fly today. Yep. So you see how the red line is in the center? It will do that when you are crossing the radial of the VOR you want to. So it tunes into the radio of the VOR. And then you select, using this dial on the outside, you select which of their 360-degree radials you want to intercept. So, for example, the TWA would have set this to 010, because they wanted to intercept the 010 of Robbinsville, and then tuned the radio to Robbinsville. And when they intercept it, this red line would be up and down. If it wasn't up and down, for example, here... So in this instance, they were to the right of it, and this is what the red line would do. Regardless of how the aircraft is pointing, it is to the right of that line. Because they're not directly on the line they're Correct. supposed Correct. to be. Correct. Got it. So that line directs them to the center of that radial. So it's, Got it. this red line is saying the radial is to your left. So to get to where you want to be on the radial you need to go this direction and right. these two instances the VOR instrumentation looks the same cuz it doesn't care which direction your plane's pointing it just cares that you need to get to, to the, the line to the right. line it just tells Got you it. if you're left or right of said line so here if you're on the line straight up and down here the line's to your right it's on the right of the center of the dial so to get to where you need to be you set where it is and the plane, this dial will tell you where you need to go to get Left to right. where you need to Correct. be. Exactly. Okay. But now the the extra confusing part of this is that it also can tell you where you're flying away from. So it can tell you if you're flying towards the VOR or away from the VOR. And, and if, how does it do that? So does it have to be north? No. No. So it literally will point to two if you're flying towards it or from if you're flying away from oh, it. Oh, okay. That's and nice. 
And with that said, too, if you're choosing a radial, then you also have to be conscious of if you're flying away from that that uh, VOR, you're flying the reciprocal of the radial you're actually flying. Right. You're flying essentially that bottom. Yeah, you're flying 180 degrees the other direction. Because if you pass the VOR on the radial you're on, suddenly you're on flying the other the side of the VOR. Yeah. You're flying the opposite. Right. So you're so on the reciprocal. 360 100... versus 180. Right. Okay. I highly recommend to, to look it up. There is a WikiHow. It's titled Navigate Using a VOR. I'll put a couple of these diagrams on the website so you can see for yourself what we're looking at. So, now, to be clear what UA reported, what the UA flight reported... There are two of them on this aircraft. Right. There are two of these VOR indicators on the aircraft, which is normal. That's There's a reason for that. We'll get to that later. There's two of these on the aircraft, and they actually legally have to have two to be instrument rated. And this is normal for most airplanes. At least that's part. That's one of the stipulations. You can actually have alternatives as well to make sure that you maintain your instrument rating as an airplane. But that was one of the stipulations, and it's also very useful to have to... Again, we'll get to that later. One of the two, the second one, was in up, and they reported this at 10:21 a.m. while they're in the New York area to the company radio. Well, is that why you have to have two, just in case one of them, you know, nope. craps out? Actually, no. Or is it to double check? No. It's to so, do more than intersection. one. Intersection. Yeah. So actually, it's so that if you're in an area with multiple VORs. You can tune both VORs, and as long as you know each radial, where an intersection is, which we'll get to all of this later, those to find that intersection, you tune both VORs and the radial that that intersection meets, and once both of those lines come to center, for both that's of those, the that's the intersection. Got it. So if you don't have one of them, it's not impossible, it is possible, but harder to find an intersection. It okay. is. And they... As Nick just said, their goal right now is to get to the Preston intersection. Okay. Right. So, their number two is not working, and they reported that to the company radio. The company radio is only for United's operations. It helps them keep track of the airplanes and the maintenance problems while they're in flight. They reported this to the company radio so that they could relay it to maintenance. And they did. The company radio did acknowledge the transmission and then relayed it to the maintenance personnel as they expected the airplane to be arriving soon. Also at 10.21 a.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 13,000 feet. The flight re replied, quote, we'd rather hold upstairs, end quote. What the heck does that mean? Yeah. Does that mean they want to hold the altitude they're at? So this, yes. This, yes. So this is kind of complicated, but they then switched to another air traffic controller immediately after that, and they explained that they were cleared it down to 13,000 feet, but they would rather stay up, the, stay up at the 25,000 feet pending any weather delays down below. They would rather not descend to hold. They would rather hold up at a higher altitude if they're not going to be able to land right away. So they said that they needed a minimum of three quarters miles visibility for landing. And because they're only VFR rated right now. Right. Okay. Sort of. They are instrument okay. rated, but it is tough. And because of that, yes, they needed more distance. So that said, at 10.24 a.m. and 37 seconds, the air traffic controller advised them of the weather at Idlewild and reported that it was light snow with half mile visibility and 1,500-foot overcast. So actually, the clouds are higher than they were at LaGuardia, but the visibility is lower. So they can't land. 
In theory, no. Okay. That said, a moment later, the flight did report that they began descending. Uh, why? Still could. <laughs> they were still I mean, cleared down to the 13,000 feet. I realized, yeah, they were cleared down to 13,000, but they, they said they wanted to stay up there until they could land, but they can't land, so... Right. I think the flight crew probably were processing and saying, well, the limits it's could close. change. And and to be clear, the air traffic controller also told them that they had not had not been experiencing any delays at all up to this point. You see, what had happened was... What had happened was... What had happened was... Yeah, they had no delays up to this point. So that basically was to convince them, hey, look, nobody has been delayed landing. You're going to be fine. Okay, so they're basically like... All right, we'll just make the trip down there anyway. And see what happens. Full faith. Yep. Maybe they shouldn't have had full faith. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, if they're on this podcast, there is no need for full faith. (laughs) At 10.25 a.m. and 9 seconds, the air traffic controller amended the flight's route, telling them to proceed on the Victor 30 airway until they reached the Victor 123 airway to go then to direct to the Preston intersection, as it would be a bit quicker than if they went all the way to Robbinsville. So... This is confusing. So basically, they're do they were scheduled to do a this, yeah, and now they're the, doing a this. Yeah. So they're kind of cutting it off. Yeah. They're cutting the corner because it was a big V that would have that caused eleven miles of extra distance. And so they shaved off eleven nautical miles. Yeah. Which is nice. So that it was quicker for them to get in. The air traffic controller was just keeping them in mind, like this will get you to the ground faster. Okay. Seems pretty nice. Yeah. Nice of them to do. Yeah. Maybe they should have gone to Robbinsville. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Sounds like that probably caused problems. This is why we yeah. don't take shortcuts, kids. <laughs> yeah. Or at least, well, now, they're, are they still not on radar at this point? They are at this point, actually. Okay. So, I don't know. Maybe, I was going to say, if they're not on radar, then... There's some things about that radar, though. Oh, good. We'll talk about uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Great. So, radar is an issue. It's just not the issue I, I mean, was thinking about. it's... Sort of. It's inconvenient. This is also 1960. I mean, yes, you know, it's a radar problem that they couldn't do anything about. Okay. Yes. So the flight acknowledged this change of route at 10:26 a.m. And at 10:26 a.m. and 49 seconds, the air traffic controller then cleared the flight down to 11,000 feet. The flight acknowledged and reported descending through 21,000 feet, so they were still 10,000 feet above that. 10.28 a.m. and 41 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that they were crossing the Victor 30 at that time. So that was part of their routing southbound. Which is a mostly-ish east-west highway. Yeah. Airway. Yeah. Whatever. Air highway. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The flight acknowledged that they were established on the Victor 30 at the time and requested distance to the Victor 123 airway. Which so is a northeast, north northeast, south southwest. So it's almost vertical, but just like, yeah, okay, yep. So right now they they were coming down south. They were the air traffic controller told them they were intersecting Victor Thirty, which meant that they were going to turn east. They acknowledged and told them, well, yes, we're on it, going east. And then they wanted to know when they how far they had to go until they were going to intersect. Victor 123 to go northbound. We, ten- all, we all got the visual? Yep, yep, yep. Okay. At 10.28 a.m. and 56 seconds, the air traffic controller reported that the flight was 16 nautical miles from Victor 123, so still a little distance to go. 10.30 a.m. and 7 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 5,000 feet, 
Also sound familiar? The flight acknowledged and reported that they were leaving 14,000 feet at the time. The air traffic controller asked, quote, Look like you'll be able to make Preston at 5,000 feet, end quote. So in other words, getting to the Preston intersection, one of the points on the Victor 123 airway that they were to make it to, were he's asking them, would you be able to get down to 5,000 feet by the time you're at that intersection? There's a reason he asks that. I'll go over it later. Yes. Okay. The flight rep- replied that they would try to. 10.32 a.m. and 16 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that if a hold was necessary for any reason, that they would hold at Preston for a one-minute right turn 360. And the only reason for a hold at the time would be for altitude getting down. The flight replied that there would be no delay because they were expecting to be at the 5,000 feet by the time they reached Preston. And that at the time they were out of 7,000 feet. 10.33 a.m. and one second. The flight reported passing through 6,000 feet. The air traffic controller then passed off control of the flight to the the Idlewild Approach Controller. 10.33 a.m. and 28 seconds. The flight contacted the Approach Controller reporting that they were approaching approaching Preston at 5,000 feet. This was the last time the flight would contact ATC. Huh. The air traffic controller then made several calls immediately after that with no response from the flight. Should I show the video? Yes. At this point in the recording, we watched a video that gave us really good visuals about these two planes. We decided to cut all that audio out because it's very boring. So if you'd like to see that video, it is on the website. You can go check it out. So the two airplanes impacted over Staten Island. People know Staten Island in New York. It's one of the boroughs. The Constellation was impacted all along the right side with the right wing separating between the two engines on the right side. So the number three and the number four engines. The airplane subsequently separated into three large sections as it fell directly down onto an impacted Miller Airfield, or what is now just Miller Field. And this was actually an Army Air Base at the time. That's kind of... Interesting. So yes. we actually show it on this visual. Yeah. There's yes, a little... it's really kind of hard to see, but yeah. So miraculously, it didn't hit any structures on the ground because of all of New York, which is very busy. They impacted pretty much the only field around them. Meanwhile, the DC-8 was mostly impacted on the left side, underside, and then the right wing, which separated as well between the number three and number four engine. The, D- the DC-8 continued to fly until it impacted in a very busy neighborhood in Brooklyn, causing a large fire and building collapses on the ground. All on board of both flights perished, as well as six on the ground in Brooklyn at the crash site of the DC-8, making a total of 134 perished in this accident. However, there was an initial survivor. Yes. Do you talk about that? No, I don't have that. So he was 11. He was on the United flight... I believe, and was thrown into a snowbank. So the fire that had ignited his clothing was actually put out, but he died, I think, a day later from having consumed jet fuel. Ooh! Or inhaled jet fuel, and he died of pneumonia. Oh. Um, in that video clip we were That's watching, crazy. the lady that was up there for a while, mm-hmm. she was a nurse and said that Burns had covered 85% of her of his body, and she couldn't tell his ethnicity because he just looked like a lump of charcoal. That's horrifying. 
even if he survived, he would have had a very painful life. Yes. Yeah, so. It's amazing that, that anybody bad. would have survived that impact. Right, even for a day. Yeah. Yeah. The separated number four engines of both airplanes happened to travel along the path in the direction the airplanes were both traveling at the time of the impact. Which became useful later. Yes. Both falling to the ground at separate locations from the airplanes themselves. That's... Interesting. We want to end the first half? Yeah, we're going to pop, uh, take a brickety break. Brickety break. And we'll come back with Christy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So there was just like a white background from the report that someone colored with the yellow and orange to show the two flight paths. And it didn't show the airports at all, the destination airports. So we decided to make our own visual. So, yeah. So this is... And it also didn't show the wreckage points. Right. So this is using that map as a reference. And then we created the map based on that using Google Maps, showing basically exactly where everything actually happened. As best as we could, obviously, because nothing's quite perfect when you don't have an actual map from the time. That's Cartographer? That's usable. So you can see it's a little bit off in some of the water lanes, but we did our best. It's it's pretty accurate. I mean, I understand the path. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, at least for what we're looking at specifically. Like where that one river goes isn't necessarily pertinent. No. And then he was going to pull up a sectional to show you the VORs we're talking about, but I'll get into it. This investigation was somewhat old. And was therefore performed by the CAB? Yeah, the Civil Aeronautics Board. This investigative authority was the predecessor to the NTSB for all who are just joining us. Investigators were able to recover the flight data recorder from the United DC-8, though it was more primitive than today's and only recorded altitude, indicated airspeed, heading, and vertical acceleration. From the wreckage, investigators were able to perform a trajectory study, which sounds vaguely fancy, but most college or even high school physics students could do this using kinematics equations. <laughs> Vaguely fancy. <laughs> I could do this. Like, the hardest thing to factor in is drag from air, which most don't teach in, like, high school physics, but there's ways. They performed this study based on one engine from each plane that fell onto Staten Island. The Super Constellation's number three engine and the DC-8's number four engine. So, correction, it wasn't both number four engines. It was number three constellation number four, DC-8. For the trajectory study, yes. Um, for those who don't know, the number four engine is the one closest to the wingtip. So that fell off of the United DC-8, though it was still able to fly into Brooklyn. But the D the number four engine was separated. No, yeah, from from UA, right? Yeah, From, from both. Oh, no, they both separated both? between both, but the number three engine also fell off the TWA as right. well. One lost two engines, the other lost one. Right. Okay. So the number three engine separated on its own, but the number four engine of TWA came with the wing. Okay. So they both separated, but the trajectory study used the Super Constellation's number three engine, which is the engine on the right wing that is closest to the fuselage. Engine number four on the DCA is 
furthest. It is closest to the wingtip on the right wing. Which, mm-hmm. if you think about it, because it only lost one engine and a, a portion of the wing, it makes sense why it was able to fly past where it hit the yeah. constellation because it still had three engines and most of a wing. <laughs> but For what it's worth. Yeah, but it was still probably too damaged to have lasted to get anywhere to land. Yeah. Clearly. The, obviously, obviously. It hit a building. <laughs> the United engine was calculated to have fallen 5,575 feet on a course of 050, which is the same course as the airway they were on, Vic- Victor 123. The TWA engine fell 3,470 feet on a course of 110 to 130 magnetic somewhere in there. Both of these gave an indication of the plane's course at the time of collision. Turns out those were vaguely in the direction they were initially flying. From this, as well as air traffic control data, investigators determined that the collision occurred between 5,175 and 5,250 feet above sea level at 10.33 and 39 seconds, somewhere in an area of 1,200 square feet centered at 6,555 feet 315 magnetic or northwest from Miller Field. That's pretty pinpointed, given that's less than the square footage of our apartment. I'm really impressed that they managed to get it down to that level of accuracy in the sky. (laughs) About exactly where they hit. It's pretty impressive. Science. 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 In reviewing air traffic control recordings, investigators found something interesting about the TWA flight. After being cleared for a turn to 150 and descent to 5,000 feet, they were alerted by LaGuardia approach of traffic at 2.30, time, clock, 6 miles, and that it was northeast bound. Then 39 seconds later, another traffic advisory in the same relative position, one mile out. At no time prior was there a warning of any kind of conflict or interference. They were not warned that they could crash. The last advisory was 5 seconds after the 20 degree heading change issued by LaGuardia approach. Why were they never warned? The surveillance in use couldn't see their altitude. Oh, that's the problem with the radar. You might have noticed that TWA kept getting asked, What's your altitude? What's your altitude? Because they couldn't see it. Yeah, so fun fact, radars nowadays... Can see your altitude. They see your altitude at any point. Unless you turn off your transponder, then they can't see you at all. (laughs) But they did not know that both planes were at the same altitude and they wouldn't because they're on two different approach uh two different um controllers yep approach controllers so they wouldn't have known i mean they could like i said like you said they could see that there's traffic but they can't tell what they can't tell where the traffic is yeah in the sky so ouch yeah now let's talk about that united flight now, you might recall that the number two nav receiver accessory unit was inoperative, and the whole time air traffic control was unaware of this fact. They know, oh, because they told you the United Airlines operations, but they never told air traffic control. Exactly. Bruh, rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, New York Center cleared them to Preston Intersection via Jet 60 Victor to Allentown via the Robbinsville VOR, then Vector 123 to Preston, maintain flight level 250. So, looking at this map, Robbinsville is, like, down here. It's the source of Victor 123. Okay. Victor 123 is on the 050 radial of Robbinsville. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Just making sure that's clear. 
at Allentown. They were cleared to descend to flight level 130 or 13,000 feet, but they said they wanted to stay at 250 for weather, whatever. After passing Allentown, they did begin to descend and were re-cleared for the shorter route to proceed on Victor 3-0. Okay, so this is Victor 3-0. Okay. And then this is Victor 1-2-3. Okay. That's so they, like, hit that point and then... Turn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was the highway, right? That was the highway they There's took? multiple highways that they're on right now. I know, Airway? but they took they took the V32, the V... So they left Allentown. So okay. both of them had flown through Allentown, for the record. Yep. Hmm. At different times. Yes. So United flew through Allentown and went was going to go intercept Robbinsville down here, but instead was told to take Victor 30, and then take that until you intercept Victor 123, take that up to Preston, and do a couple little circles there. So okay. if they had gone all the way down, they wouldn't have necessarily had to do the little circles? That's why we talked about maybe not taking shortcuts in life, friends. Well, yeah, because so, then you got to wait yes. and do little circles. So even if they went past where they were supposed to hold, which it sounds like that's what happened, if they had done what they had originally intended to do, they, they wouldn't have passed Preston. Well, there's that. and No, but I'll, t- I'll explain why. Because you said they were going too fast. From he said one. He was going too fast. Yes, well, they were going too, fast. going too fast. But there's also the, yeah, we're going to Robbinsville. Oh wait, we took a. Did we take a shortcut? Is that an actual conversation that was had? No, because that but seems like a bad time. That, that was speculation. There's no CBR, so I can't confirm one way or the other. Let's move on. This shortened the distance to Preston again by 11 nautical miles. This included descending to flight level 110 or 11,000 feet after intercepting Victor 30 which United confirmed establishing Victor 30 and asked for the distance from Victor 123 which they were told was 16 miles and then 2 miles from crossing Victor 433 which never really came up but there's Victor 433 so, okay so they were like ish here so 2 miles to there 16 miles to here Investigators determined that air traffic control should have informed the crew of their rapid approach to their clearance limit. So what they mean by clearance limit is they were cleared to Preston Intersection. Right. That's it. They weren't told they could go, they could proceed from that yet. Right. Air traffic control should have told them, hey, you're coming in pretty hot. Yeah. To be clear, at the time, there was no airspeed restrictions per se, but they were traveling wicked fast and we'll get to how fast later because it is one of the only things that actually was really important that changed from this good because i don't get into it Mm -hmm. after established on victor 30 air traffic control cleared them to descend to 5,000 feet the flight acknowledged and reported leaving 14,000 feet new york center asked if they could make preston at 5,000 feet and the crew said they would try the reason air traffic control asses was because they can't transfer control to Idlewild until they descend below 6,000 feet. Okay. So if they had gotten to Preston Intersection without descending that far, they had to remain on the New York Center traffic control rather than transferring to the airport's traffic control. Okay. So New York Center gave holding instructions for Preston Intersection, at which time the flight reported leaving 7,000 and then 6,000 feet. The leaving of 6,000 feet, so them leaving, was acknowledged by New York Center, and they were told to contact Idlewild Approach, but did not give any radar vectors. 
United was doing its own navigation as far as they knew, and radar service thus far was provided using advisories. The flight was told to contact Idlewild, and the flight said that they were approaching Preston at 5,000 feet, but little did they know they had actually already passed Preston by several miles. Did they not know that because they didn't have their second In a manner of speaking, thing? yes. So, as we talked about before, normally you would use one VOR for one radial of a VOR, the other instrument for another VOR's radial, and once you've crossed both of those, you're at the intersection. Yippee! If you only have one, however, one way to do it, so they knew they were already on Victor 123. They knew that they were on the 5-0 radial of Robbinsville. They could have just tuned their one instrument to the appropriate radial of Colt's Neck, which is the other intersecting VOR. So that's... The 346. That's this here. So they should have tuned to the 346 of Colt's Neck, which is the intersection radial for Preston. But it's kind of hard to determine what exactly happened there. But we'll get into that later. New York Center had not told Idlewild of the revised and shortening of their route, did not tell Idlewild that they had taken Victor 3-0 instead of going to Robbinsville, as was originally planned. So that's slightly problematic. Idlewild did not see any plane report approaching Preston, and they need to have positive radar contact before giving any vector instructions to a flight. So they need to be able to, in some capacity, know exactly where they are. There are three ways to do this. One is an aircraft reporting over a known radio fix, such as Preston Intersection. Two, ascertaining a heading of aircraft and requesting a turn to a designated heading for identification. Or three, the coded beacon transponder response. They did not have any of these. Radar handoff requires both facilities to observe the aircraft, and the current facility could not handoff until the new one had a positively identified the aircraft. Now, radar handoffs are not common, and they are used at the discretion of the controller with prior coordination between the facilities or in the event of an emergency. And this did not end up happening with UA, because they couldn't get that positive identification. Now, as I mentioned before, United Airlines did not tell air traffic control of their single omni-receiver, so air traffic control assumed they could provide their own navigation, essentially. They would know when they passed an intersection. They didn't need additional help. So, that was air traffic's control excuse for not helping them say, hey, you're at Preston. They should have known on their own, as far as they knew. Yeah, but they shouldn't have handed them off yet, right? Because the other facility hasn't had them on radar. And these are rare. These handoffs. Right. As it were. But there's both, both air traffic controllers have to be on the same level. And they weren't. Level. And he decided to hand them off without asking the other he he handed them off without confirming that they could idle wild had positively identified the aircraft okay so basically what you're telling me is part of this not and it's a very like 16th of a 16th part yeah. is the atc's fault yes because part of I, a- I really hesitate to say that because it should have been a smooth quote-unquote handoff because as far as they knew it would have been easy to identify the aircraft because they could say, hey, we're over Preston now. Right. So and I'm that's why I'm saying it's a very, 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 very small portion. Yeah. This was very much supposed to be... I, I mean, at the time you think about it, air traffic control is having to control a very large 
Very busy area, extremely This is busy one of the busiest airspaces. In the world. And they're having to do it with, you know... Primitive technology. Primitive technology at the time. I mean, radar wasn't necessarily new, but it wasn't great at the time. And you're having to deal with all these different airports, which Newark, LaGuardia, and JFK, all being right next to one another even now, still causes a lot of traffic issues because they're having to share airways and VORs and space in order to make these airports not cause problems for one another, they have to communicate diligently. And so now there's a lot of procedures built into these airports where, and the approaches and departures where it really shouldn't be a problem for one another yeah. as long as they agree not to use the same space for a major approach or departure. And there's a lot of air traffic control procedures that have been remedied since then, but and one of them, I think is this next point is that there was not a requirement for a positive handoff for this flight. Right. Which I'm assuming changed, if not after this flight, but after, eventually. You know, eventually. Let me, and let me rephrase this, right? It is not the air traffic controller's fault that they went past Preston. No. That wasn't their fault. And I'm not saying that the collision itself is air traffic control's fault. I'm saying that they didn't get any extra help to get to the actual airport because they didn't have a smooth transfer from ATC. Which was not required. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. yeah. It was not procedurally required to happen. It, it Part of it was the ca- the, not just the captain, but both pilots didn't tell ATC, hey, one of our navigational aides is out. <laughs> right. Nobody in the cockpit. There's three people in the cockpit, and somebody should have been paying a lot closer attention to navigation. Yeah. And, and they no, weren't. No one. They decided to contact maintenance, which is great, but they didn't contact, you know, the people that can really help you the most, which is uh, air traffic control. <laughs> so, so I don't know how much this will actually help. But this shows the VORs that we've been talking this about. This does show the VORs, and the only airway that actually still exists, I think, out of the ones that we've really talked about around the actual accident site, is the Victor 123. And it's actually different than where it used to be. It used to be further to the left. So, because it's deviated a little bit and joined with another Victor airway that exists. So, to be clear, just because they didn't have both navigational aids doesn't mean they couldn't have made it. I just want to reiterate this. So, Not at all. Normally, they would use one to maintain being on Victor 123, which is the 050 radial of Robbinsville, and use the other as the 346 radial of Colt's Neck. So that would have told them when they got to the intersection with both needles straight up and down. So, so by using just the one with Colt's Neck, no, they would not have verification that they were still on Victor 123 Airway. But, I mean, you're flying in a straight line. As long as you yeah. keep flying in that straight line, you're just on Just fly on the same heading you're flying on. And Don't change anything while you're looking at the other VOR. You'll Theor- be able to find the the intersection. Theoretically, if they were going like faster than essentially they should have been, and taking a shortcut could have affected their ability to set it in time? Or is it like you could set it instantaneously? They could set it pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, you just change the but knob, I'll, right? I'll get into it. The knob and the radio frequency. But you yeah. also have to be paying attention to the fact that it's the reciprocal. Yes. Yes. So, technically, shall I amend myself? According to the report, it was not the 346 that they should have tuned to on Colt's neck. It was the 116, which is... The reciprocal. Yes. Or 166. 166. 
Mixing up numbers and I'm... You see how this gets confusing? I hate viewers. Yep. Okay. Air traffic control procedures don't provide for separation of either instrument flight rules traffic or visual flight rules traffic, except in designated positive control airspace. At the time, conditions were not conducive to VFR, so there was probably no VFR traffic on Vector... Not Vector. Vector 123. Mind you, this this all happened pretty much in the clouds. Yep. These two, this accident. New York Center records show no IFR traffic overflying the New York metro area using Victor 123 between 10 and 11 o'clock. Therefore, the traffic observed by LaGuardia that was unidentified would have been the only traffic, would have only been traffic intended for LaGuardia or Idlewild or unidentified. LaGuardia did not have a flight progress report, but they were aware of the traffic on Victor 123 that was not destined for their airport. They should have asked New New York Center for information on that plane, but it was doubtful that they would have asked and gotten that information in the 39 seconds before the collision. The collision. Yep. What they should have done, and investigators determined this, they should have provided evasive vectors for TWA on the assumption that the unidentified traffic was conflicting. They should have said, there's traffic, let's just get you out of there. Right. Assuming they're on your flight level. Not knowing for sure... But again, yeah. you should never assume, but it's always good to cover your butt, right? Yeah. We always talk about covering your butt. And we we have a whole nother accident about evasive maneuvers coming soon and how that didn't go right. Oh, you mean because next there, week? Yes. Yes, next <laughs> because, week. <laughs> because there is a whole nother system now developed post this that was supposed to help with that. Yes. And actually it worked. But we'll, we'll get, get that into later. that next week. Yeah. So that doesn't matter much. But the point is, is yes, air traffic control should have given them an evasive maneuver, just in the assumption that they would have intersected with this airplane and not been able to see them. So especially given the weather. So the, the idea should have been they should have given them a hard left turn or a hard right, a much Something harder to right get them turn, out of the way or a hard ascent or descent. So now you might be wondering why United didn't know when they had reached Preston. So did the investigators. They're like, why would you pass that intersection point? There's no reason that you should have. Right. So the first thing investigators did was look at all three VORs that form that intersection point in case one of them was malfunctioning for whatever reason. They didn't find any problems with this. There's a whole litany of possible mechanical malfunctions like co-channel interference, harmonics, industrial radial noise, reflections, vertical polarization, or a transmitter malfunction. Or it could be that they just weren't on the proper VOR to find it. Well, they just wanted to check to make sure all three of these VORs are working. Oh, so that if they did have it on their their one instrument that yeah. was working, it wasn't an issue with the VOR. Correct. They found that Colt's neck was covered in two inches of snow, which the FAA says is not ideal. Deal, but it doesn't technically inhibit the signal so much until it reaches the height of the antenna on the VOR, which is 48 inches. They did not have four <laughs> feet of snow. <laughs> they might right now. Uh, possibly. So that was not the case, nor were any of the other various things that I listed, which covers a lot of my script. Um, so the United crew at the time failed to note the time and distance that was shorter for the intersection of Victor 123 to the Preston intersection. So because they took the shortcut, once they intersected the airway, it would be shorter for them to reach Preston than if they had gone with their original plan. Right. They didn't think about that. 
Well, that would make sense. If if you're, let's say, you're doing this route, I don't know, a couple times a week. And Which you, they, this was a frequent route for them. Right. Yes. So if they always go down to Robbinsville consistently, they kind of know the timing of where they're going to hit Preston. If they take a shortcut one time and don't account for the fact that it's a shortcut, I could see why they would think it would be farther up yep. past where Preston was. That's why they thought they were still approaching it. Right. Investigators surmised that they may have been anticipating the longer distance, which is why they thought they hadn't reached Preston yet, because they're used to flying to Robbinsville instead. They had done this many times and were familiar with the distance. They also determined that the captain was probably in some capacity trying to use his ADF instruments or the automatic direction finder to supplement the use of the one functioning VOR system. And this could have confused the entire crew because now they have a shorter distance and a higher workload and they exceeded their clearance limits and flew past Preston. Yikes. And they were going so fast. Yeah. And they weren't warned by air traffic control of this. Right. So, quote, this is a long quote. The board concludes that while with this type aircraft, it is possible to navigate with one VOR navigational unit, the high degree of cockpit occupation during the approach to Preston intersection indicates that a second operable VOR unit should have assisted in a positive identification of the Preston intersection. The change of clearance from the original Allentown direct Robbinsville Victor 123 to Preston to the shortcut clearance present heading to Victor 32. Victor 30 to Victor 123 to Preston added to the workload of revising and recomputing the navigational problem during a very small interval of time. The board further concludes that the New York Center controller did not observe United 826 proceeding through the Preston intersection before he had advised the flight to contact Idlewild Approach Control. Pause in the quote. So basically, the New York Center didn't see them overshoot Preston before they handed them off. So it wasn't their problem anymore. Right. I don't know. That's a little... I mean, they handed off control. It's not their problem anymore. They didn't see them go past Preston. Resuming the quote. When radar service was being terminated at 1033 and 20 seconds, flight 826 had already proceeded eight or nine miles beyond Preston. United 826 acknowledges transmission at 1033 and 27 seconds, seconds before the collision. End quote. And that's about it. There's no findings. All the findings were everything I just covered. Yep. Because... This is the CAB. This and they're is short the four and sweet. cockpit voice recorders and the H, or the FDR, not the H something. There was an FDR. Well, yes, but it wasn't. It was primitive. As it wasn't extensive as the ones we use well, now. Well, and it wasn't super useful in this case because there was a lot of other things they could use to determine basically exactly what happened. Yeah. And the way reports are written now with the findings and conclusions, basically you can go find section three of a report and read just that and know everything that happened. You might not get the full gist of it, but it's better than reading the whole report. Whereas in this instance, you had to read their whopping 32 page report. Yeah. The whopping 32 pages. I know. Yeah. It's almost as bad as Emily's last one. Hey, yeah. hey my report <laughs> one was <page>. awesome. <laughs> it was like five pages. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> you back off. Hey, we've had a couple of one and two page reports. Yep. They're super fun. So since I don't have findings, here's the probable cause. Mm -hmm. Verbatim. 
The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was that United Flight 826 proceeded beyond its clearance limit and the confines of the airspace allocated to the flight by air traffic control. A contributing factor was the high rate of speed of the United DC-8 as it approached the Preston intersection, coupled with the change of clearance which reduced the en route distance along Victor 123 by approximately 11 miles. Yep. So... We pointed this out during one of our breaks. Yes, these are the two same airlines from the Grand Canyon collision. Yeah. And also, the TWA plane's the same as the TWA plane that had same that type. And also, yeah. the TWA plane had nothing to do with the accident itself. It was yeah. just in the worst place at the worst time. Yeah. UA made in the both, mistake again. In both cases. And, God, I mean, Howard Hughes must have been so mad. At United. <laughs> <laughs> Quit crashing my planes! Stop hitting my stuff! <laughs> it's okay. I think he was more mad at Pan Am about everything. It was... It was. So at the time, this was the worst aviation accident in history. Oh, yeah. We should emphasize that. This doesn't mean much, actually, because in throughout history, this was quickly trumped. I think that lasted eight years. Something like that. It might not have even... But this Something one... Something like that. This one, yeah. This was a, this was a very bad accident. And it was pretty unfortunate. But that said, they they don't have a recommendation section. They actually have something better than that. They have what changed. Hey, hey, hey. Specifically. We, well, like, don't have these a lot in American reports. No, they don't. This was uh, So the whole reason for that is because it was much easier to change regulation on an industry that didn't have many yet. You mean they just implemented regulation? <laughs> they basically yeah. were well, like, yeah. huh, haven't thought about this yet. That's new. Let's do it now. (laughs) There was far less red tape. Yes, far less. Because now there's so much regulation on on it all that in order for... If if, if a problem does come up, it probably affects something else. So they have to put some thought to it and rewrite everything. Yeah, modifications. Everything that's tied to it. It's like the meme of the guy with the red yarn all over the room. Right. It's like every that's tied to that and that's tied to that and that's tied to that. We got to change all of this. Right. That wasn't the case here because they didn't... They didn't have those red lines yet. Right. This so, was the basis of the red lines. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Hey, hey, hey. So okay. they have six of these, and we're just going to read this off verbatim, and we'll go through them because they're all pretty short, but pretty, pretty simple to understand. And if there's anything that comes up that's not super important, I might skip over. But so their little preface to this is the board notes that during the course of this investigation, the Federal Aviation Agency, yes, the FAA, but known as the agency at the time, not the administration, took various steps to improve and strengthen the efficiency and effectiveness of its air traffic control system, including the following. A special regulation was issued, which requires pilots operating under instrument flight rules to report in-flight malfunctions of navigation or communication equipment. Well, look at that. There you go. Tell someone. A VOR instrument. I.e. when something goes wrong, everyone should know so that... They know what to they do with you. They understand what's happening. They know what to do with you. Because t- air traffic control could have just given them straight up vectors. Right. Rather than... Exactly. Yes. Assuming that they could do stuff on their own. On instrument, yes. Yeah. A program has been established for all turbine-powered aircraft to e- be equipped with distance measuring equipment, or DME, by January 1st of 1963. One year later, all aircraft... Of over 12,500 pounds, maximum takeoff weight must be so equipped. DME is actually, they're actually even more outdated now. Um, But they, it was a helpful tool at the time, because it definitely tells you distance to certain points and objects in space. 
So, so rather they, than just waiting for a VOR to come to center. You can saying, actually tell the exact distance you are from that VOR at any given time. Yeah, I've talked about it in a Miranda soap before. It made my brain hurt a little yes. bit. But VOR it, makes my brain hurt. Yes. DME is still... Don't get me wrong. DME is still very much used in aviation, but now it's used very differently because you don't necessarily need to have the actual piece of equipment to do it. You can actually... GPS now can basically give you a DME from any given location on Earth. GPS is why VORs are so outdated. Now, and yet we still use them because it's a manual form of navigation. It's manual. You can do it with, like, worst case scenario, you lose power to some things. Like, you can function. Yes. It's a basic skill to have. But now VORs act more as waypoints. Yes, VORs are definitely way more waypoint related. They're not much used in way of actual frequencies. They still have to transmit the frequency because people who are learning to fly still have to learn how to use VORs. And say you're out in space. Oh my gosh, my GPS quit. My iPad's dead. My phone's dead. I don't know how all that happened. But it did. I was a really bad <laughs> pilot and didn't plan. And most of the time a backup GPS too. Gone. I don't know. <laughs> I was a really bad pilot. (laughs) Really bad pilot just took off and had no plan. And I'm in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. How do I get out of there? Well, VORs. At least you still have that, I guess. You still have one thing going for you. When in doubt, VOR. When in doubt, VOR. Kind of the the point is, if you haven't caught on, that's not very likely to happen. We should have a shirt that says that. When in doubt, VOR. When in doubt, VOR. So now... The way in which VORs would be used is like, okay, you're going to take this VOR to this VOR to this VOR to the airport. So you just plug in, I want to go to Robbinsville, then Colts Neck, and then to LaGuardia or whatever. You're connecting the dots and making a zigzag line out of what should be straight. (laughs) A lot of it's for like approaches and departures. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you know, hit people. But the Victor Airways are still very much used and are actually extremely important. Those are very active. And are very much used for all traffic, including including commercial traffic. They're very much GPS and uh, full instrument requirements. They they have to be able to use them. And so the intersections where those Victor Airways meet are also waypoints for most aircraft flying approaches and departures. And those waypoints are very important, like Preston. All right, moving on. Also changed... Radar handoff service for arriving and departing aircraft in the New York area is being performed to a much greater extent than was practiced before the accident. On a national basis, full-time radar handoff service has increased to a great extent. So, I mean, when they're saying that, what they're really saying is in a very short amount of time, the, the radar services for the country and then the handing off from one controller to another, one radar controller to another is much cleaner and is changing rapidly. And I think they kind of left this one more for consequence of time rather than an actual change. Rather than saying, we're going to change this or this has changed because we made it so, it's more like time is making this possible. Time is what's bringing more radar and better communication and those kinds of things. So it's important, and it's important that they learn these things, but it's a consequence of time. Controllers have been instructed to issue an advisory to arriving jet aircraft to, quote, slow to holding pattern airspeed at least three minutes before reaching holding fix, end quote. So, on your way to Preston, slow down. There's a speed for holding, and you're not doing it if you're going 500 miles an hour over the ground. Yeah, so basically, 
the whole thing I talked about with the air traffic controller probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have even happened because they would have said, hey, you're approaching Preston, you're going a little too fast, you need to slow down. And then that would have triggered the pilots to go, oh, we're almost at Preston. <laughs> right. You know, they would kind of have figured out where they were. Part of the problem with this, a- with this accident was that the pilots didn't particularly know where they were. And we don't 100% know why that is because we don't have a CVR. But they didn't know where they were. So, and they were going too fast, and due to a bunch unfortunate of missed, circumstances, yeah, a bunch of unfortunate circumstances, it caused them to end up hitting another airplane. Yep. This one's a little more specific. The Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania VOR name and identification signal have been changed to Townersville because of potential confusion with Solberg. Ah, that didn't come up in anything I read, but that doesn't mean it wasn't important. Well, they, if you're they probably s- just took the time to go, you know what? We can change stuff, so we're going to change stuff. More than anything, this sounds like more of a radio problem, because when you're saying over the the radio, Flavor the Strohberg VOR versus Flight of the Solberg VOR. Can you tell the difference? That's fair. This is so, why I can't be a if pilot. If you've ever heard, if you've ever tuned in to an approach or a departure radio frequency... It's- Trippy. I don't know how they can understand what they're saying. Brendan, when he was training, he said that he's missed a couple of radio calls and his instructor's like, you going to answer that? And he's like, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> there was a call. For yeah. me? It's, it's, it's definitely a learned skill to be, you know how like when you hear your name in a crowd? It's called the, the yeah, cocktail effect. Right, the right. cocktail effect where all of a sudden that thing pings in your brain. You go, what? It happens to me whenever someone says flute. I'm like, what? Right. That's me. So Uh-oh. it's that same learned trick when it comes to flying as well. You learn your call sign, but you have to commit them to memory quick because that little thing has to trigger in your brain anytime air traffic control calls it over the next how long. So that, that little thing trips in your brain. It becomes a learned skill when you're flying and talking to radio. Okay, so one more thing changed, and I do think this is probably the most important one. To me, in my mind, this is the one thing that might have solved this whole problem, and that is speed. The agency. I am speed. speed. <laughs> <laughs> the agency has issued a speed rule which prohibits aircraft from exceeding 250 knots when within 30 nautical miles of a destination airport and below 10,000 feet except where the safety requirement of tactical military jets dictates a higher minimum speed, which then applies to these aircraft. So that rule is absolutely still in place. That is exactly how it reads today. I'm pretty sure we've talked about it before, too. Yes. Below 10,000 feet, they should never be over 250 knots indicated. So that means they still could be moving 300 knots over the ground, but... If you have a tailwind. They're not moving 500 knots over the ground anymore. And this would have meant that they never would have met, even with their 11-mile shortened distance, they never would have met at the crash site, even missing Preston. They would have done it much later. Yeah. So that the speed thing is key. They were flying into an extremely busy airspace, like a bat out of hell, and just, I mean, they missed Preston they because of timing. They blew by it. Because of, because of timing, because they were flying so fast and not paying attention. <laughs> And not navigating. And then they flew right to the crash site at freaking full speed. I don't know yeah, how the air traffic... why didn't they just... I don't know how the air traffic controllers could even keep up with them. When you're, when you're having to deal with so many airplanes in such a small area, you don't want any single one of those airplanes moving at a high rate of speed. Because 
you're having to make sure that they're not going through anything that you're also trying to control or somebody else is, i.e. TWA. And at the same time, making calls for them for vectors is really hard when they're moving 500 miles an hour. I mean, you're not wrong. So this was huge. Speed was huge for this to me. Yes, the faulty VOR, there's nothing you can really do about the instrument not working, but there is things you can do about how navigating. Fast you're going. How yeah. fast you're going and the navigation. Yeah. So this was the New York air collision. Or flights. TWA. Ah! <laughs> 266 and United Airlines 826. You know, wasn't the other one TWA 260? No, no, we, we covered... We did to TWA 260, but, but that, that was... But that was not the collision one. No, that was the one in uh, New Mexico. It, yeah. That hit a mountain. Yeah. You like how I pulled that up for you? <laughs> yes, thank you. She pulled... I always have a problem at the end of the episodes saying the flight numbers, because I can never remember them, and she pulled them up on the thing. And I was like, oh, look, there's a thing there. So if you're as confused as we are about VORs, then welcome to the world of aviation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is wicked confusing. You start talking about... Four different headings, true, magnetic, direct radial, and reciprocal, and it gets extremely confusing. I almost cried today because I was so frustrated trying to figure out how the freaking instrument works. I don't blame you. You want to get even more confused? Check out the stuff we had to do with uh, New Zealand, the Air New Zealand flight, because that one, everything was inverted. Yes. It was inverted because they were on a grid heading. Which because uh, magnetic don't work down there, and it's oh gosh, it was a lot. So if you if you want to hear true frustration, check out that. I think oh. it's New Zealand one hundred nine. I don't or remember. New Zealand nine hundred one. I don't know. Nine hundred one. It was nine hundred one. Uh, yeah, that one didn't make me cry. This one made me cry slightly. This one was tough. My mom walked in the room. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I don't understand it. I don't want to do. <laughs> I was like, we should just not do this flight. <laughs> She's like, okay, I'm going to go to the store now. <laughs> and in one day, you managed to understand more about VOR than most pilots can understand in like a year. And don't get me wrong. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. That's not true. Uh, but they still struggle. You know, we might have gotten a thing or two wrong about VOR in here because it's that confusing. We tried really hard to explain this as best as we could, and I'm not an expert in VOR. You're not an expert in VOR. It's that hard to explain, even if you were. I mean, it makes... The way you described it, it made sense, so... And I highly recommend taking a look at the visuals we created. Um, They are on the website. As always, check out the newsletter, check out Patreon, check out listener questions and stories for january it is first aviation experiences yep and then for listener questions we have a couple that we're going to address in the coming weeks as well as some corrections to things we have said yeah we will be addressing those here soon and we appreciate it when you do call out these corrections for for detail purposes and give us this kind of critical thing in the hopes that you're helping us make this better because some of you guys are experts and we're not Right. Yes. If you want to correct our VOR <laughs> information, please. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but she did it for you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> All for you, David. <laughs> All right. Thank you, as always, for listening and supporting us. Please stay safe and stay healthy. Have a very, very happy new year. And we will catch you guys next time. Thanks for being here, Emily. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Keep, Keep your speed up. up.
Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.